We are delighted and indeed honored to be joined on the 966 by His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Faisal Al-Saud. Prince Turkey is, of course, former head of Saudi Arabia's General Intelligence Directorate for 23 years, former ambassador of Saudi Arabia, first to the United Kingdom and Ireland, and after that to the United States, co-founder and trustee of the King Faisal Foundation, chairman of the board King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Prince Turkey is also a visiting distinguished professor at Georgetown University. Your Royal Highness Prince Turkey, thank you so much for joining us on the 966. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ziegler. Thank you, Mr. Wilson, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's our pleasure, and it's really, truly an honor. We're just delighted to have you. I first met you, Prince Turkey, in the 1990s, actually. You may not recall. I, um, I was traveling with George Nafee. Uh, I remember him. I remember you as well. And we the saw you George in Riyadh. Taifi. He was uh, he was one of the first to deal in American Arab relations. He was. He was very passionate about it, and it was uh, you know it was my first uh, intro after after finishing up at at uh, Johns Hopkins. But uh, we're here today uh, to talk about anything you wish. But I think I suggested that uh, if we could get your insights and thoughts on uh, the King Faisal Foundation. And and the tremendous work it's done, and and I, I'm interested in that. We're all interested in that because I don't think it gets the attention it needs. Um, before we get into that, Prince Turkey, I wanted to maybe for our listeners to talk a little bit about King Faisal himself, if this is okay. And sure. I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but a a little brief intro um, sure. about King Faisal. Um, you know, his his timing was extraordinary. He was born in 1906. This is only four years after his father. Abdulaziz bin Abdulrahman al-Saud reconquered Riyadh and, and began recreating, I mean, creating a modern Saudi state. And, and Faisal bin Abdulaziz, later to be King Faisal, uh, is a third oldest son of King Abdulaziz. And he was, he was often side by side with his father as he methodically consolidated key regions of the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, uh, at the age of 14, uh, he traveled at King as King Abdulaziz's envoy to Britain and France. And now this maybe is a plug for, for you, Prince Turkey. This five-month diplomatic <laughs> journey is a subject of a full-length feature film, Born a King. Yes. Um, and it's, uh, it's supposed to be extraordinary. I have not been able to see it yet, uh, much to my regret. Um, but returning to, King, to, to, to Faisal bin Abdulaziz, he became viceroy of the newly conquered Hejaz region at the age of 20, 20, you know, first, you know, Saudi royal to be in, in Britain or, or France at 14, viceroy of the Hajj at 20, later serving as minister of interior, president of the consultative assembly, crown prince and prime minister. And by the time he was named king of Saudi Arabia, he had also served as minister of foreign affairs for 30 years. Yes. Um, while serving, serving as king from 1964 to 1975, he implemented a policy of moder modernization and reform, abolishing slavery, introducing female education, establishing a welfare system uh, in the Ministry of Justice, among many, many other steps. Uh, and, and this is where I'm a, a little embarrassed because, you know, uh, this is your father, someone you, you know so well, but he was known as a person of integrity and character. And both then and now, and this is interesting because I feel this as a, you know, as, a, as an American, I'm not Saudi, but he can only be described as beloved by all Saudis. Oh. Um, and, and just to kick it off, Prince Turkey, obviously, apart from being King Faisal's son, you actually served as an advisor to King Faisal's royal court beginning in 1973. And, and as you well know, a head of state makes innumerable decisions that directly impact the country and citizens. And, uh, and just was very interested. Are there any of King Faisal's choices that, that stand out to you? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the introduction. It was pretty accurate. And uh, as far as, uh, as uh, King Faisal's uh, decisions, if you like, and the important uh, moments uh, in a career that spanned more than 50 years, you can imagine how many of those uh, moments uh, occurred in his life, especially that he was uh, a trusted uh, uh, friend and, and uh, son of the late King Abdulaziz and uh, uh, an obedient and faithful servant of, of uh, King Saud when he was king and subsequently 
serving the Saudi people as their monarch. Um, if I can just give you some vignettes of, of his prior life, uh, according to what I heard from him, for example, um, in, in 1934, um, there was a border conflict uh, with Yemen, uh, deja vu. Uh, and at that time, the, the, the Imam of Yemen uh, uh, laid siege to Saudi territory in the south of, of the kingdom bordering uh, Yemen. And uh, King Abdelaziz tried through negotiation, etc., to to get him to to leave those those uh, uh, territories. He wouldn't. So um, a war was declared, and uh, my late father was uh, commissioned to lead an army, uh, one of two armies. Uh, his uh, army was supposed to go to Yemen through the the coastal uh, road uh, bordering the the Red Sea. Uh, and the other army was to go from the interior uh, against uh, against the imam's uh, forces. He managed to to enter Yemen uh, through the the coastal route and reach the city of Hudaydah, uh, again deja vu. Um, and uh, we found it uh, uh, empty of of the imam's forces because they had lost several battles on the way when he was reaching that, that stage. But uh, on, on the coastline in front of, of Hudaydah, uh, three uh, military uh, ships were, were moored. Um, one was British, one was Italian, and one was French. Um, each one of them was observing, of course, the events between the Saudi and, and the Yemeni kingdoms at that time, and each had interests in the Yemen. Um, the British uh, uh, captain uh, came uh, ashore and saluted my, my late father and said, uh, I would like to get your guarantee for the British citizens' lives in, in Hudaydah. And, and uh, my father told him, be reassured that they will, there will be no harm against them. And uh, so he saluted and, and left back to his ship. Uh, the French captain came ashore and equally asked for reassurances for French citizens uh, in, in Hudaydah, and he was given those assurances and he left uh, back. The Italian captain came, came ashore and uh, told uh, uh, my father, according to my father's words, if I can remember them correctly, um, we have uh, Italian citizens here and we are going to send a party to protect them. Um, now that, of course, uh, meant uh, some kind of, of threat uh, to the sovereignty of of, uh, of the presence of of, uh, of uh, Faisal bin Abdaiz in, in Hudaydah, and uh, so uh, there was a standoff between uh, the Saudi forces and the Italian forces. Fortunately for my late father, uh, not all of his forces in, were in Hudaydah when, when the Italian captain made that, that demand, but uh, his major forces were on the way. And uh, the deadline that my father gave to the, to the captain to, to remove himself from, from the port uh, came uh, as these forces were approaching the city. Uh, and so um, sheepishly, if I might add, the, the Italian captain, you know, turned around and went back to his ship. So it was that kind of, of, of confrontation yani, that um, could have led to other things, but fortunately uh, it didn't. Uh, and it was that kind of, of, of person, yani, not only one of, of, of patience and, and understanding, but also firm resolve. Um, and... Uh, that is one, one aspect. Another story which uh, not many people have heard about is that uh, when um, uh, President uh, Truman, after succeeding uh, President Roosevelt, um, first uh, affirming President Roosevelt's commitment to King Abdelaziz that nothing uh, will be done on the issue of Palestine before consulting uh, Arab leaders, uh, and, and then Truman, uh, reversing that decision and going ahead and, and recognizing the then uh, state of Israel through United Nations uh, Secu uh, Security Council Resolution, General Assembly Resolution. 
Um, my father swore that he would not go to the United States as long as President Truman remained president. Uh, so uh, from, from 1970, uh, 40, 48, I think, um, he, he did not set foot in the United States until President uh, Eisenhower was elected uh, in 1952, I think it was. Um, but it was a, for him, it was a matter of principle that uh, President Truman had broken his word and uh, the assurance of his predecessor. And therefore, he didn't think that he could deal with, with a person like that. But with the, with, the, with the Eisenhower administration, of course, then it was a new era and uh, there were good relations between them uh, and uh, went forward. These are just two examples to show you the, the, the character of the late King Yad. And, and fascinating. I'm, I'm interested to know what the French wanted out of Hodeida. <laughs> <laughs> they did have some, some subjects. As you know, they had, they had African subjects who may have been working in, in, uh, in Hodeida. They had North African subjects who may have been working in, in Hodeida as well uh, at that time. So, uh, and, and anyway, uh, in the 1930s, that part of, of, of the Red Sea was very much uh, in contest between the then colonial powers. Uh, Italy had just advanced its claims in Ethiopia by uh, occupying Ethiopia, colonizing it. The British had uh, colonies in East Africa and of course Sudan and, and Egypt, but the French had Djibouti. And so uh, just across uh, this, the, uh, the Bab el-Mandab Strait from Yemen. Mm -hmm. So all of them had interest there. Fascinating. And it brings up something we talk about in the 966 a lot. So, so this was uh, King Faisal, this was 1934, two years after Saudi Arabia had, had been recognized as a, as a, as a country. Um, and then he declines to go after uh, Harry Truman reneges on, on President Roosevelt's commitment. He declines to go. So, so this was, um, so King, uh, Ibn Saud, King Abdulaziz, was king from 1932 to 1953, and when he passed away, the, 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 my point is, is it's extraordinary. 1953, Eisenhower's president. I mean, the country, Saudi Arabia, was at that time, you know, 21 years old. It, it's right. a, it's a young country, and I, I think people forget how how recent all this is. Yeah. Well, not only a, a young country, but uh, a very poor country in terms of financial resources. As you know, the whole story of the discovery of oil in Saudi Arabia happened by happenstance. Um, the, uh, the British uh, having discovered oil in, in Iraq, Iran, and then in Bahrain and, and Kuwait, uh, King Abdaiz invited them to, to, to look in Saudi Arabia. They did, and they came back with a report that, sorry, your majesty, there is no oil in your territory. Um, of course, they live to regret that uh, <laughs> incident, but uh, he received uh, an American, Charles Crane, um, who was, if you remember, the King Crane Commission after the First World War, which set up the mandate uh, statuary for the uh, post-Ottoman territories in, in, in the Levant, uh, in Palestine, in, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, and in Iraq. And, and so uh, Crane uh, had a, an interest in, in, in the Arab world and, and came on a visit on his yacht uh, to, uh, to Jeddah and uh, had dinner with King Abdelaziz. And they were discussing the, the availability of water resources in the kingdom. And the king complaining that and unfortunately in such a large territory, uh, there wasn't much water. So Crane offered to send uh, a geologist that worked for his one of his companies to look for water in, in the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, true to form, uh, within six months, that, uh, that geologist uh, came back with a report to King Abdelaziz uh, saying, basically, your majesty, you're absolutely right. There are not many water resources in your kingdom, but there may be oil. And uh, meetings were set up uh, uh, with uh, American oil companies at the time and uh, Mr. Uh, uh, the, the British advisor of King Abdelaziz, uh, John Philby, uh, was instrumental in getting some of these companies to come to Saudi Arabia 
And uh, after searching for a few years and, and digging uh, empty wells, if you like, and so on, finally struck oil in 1937, I think, or 38. And um, history goes on from there. Uh, so, uh, yes, the kingdom was very poor in, in 1953, still after the war coming out, and much dependent on goodwill and friendship uh, of the United States, uh, which was growing because of these uh, interests uh, in, in oil and other resources in the kingdom. We had uh, Reem Philby, who was a granddaughter of Harry St. Yes. John Philby, on a yes. recent episode uh, for the, their Heart of Arabia expedition. We were talking about how he, he let down his British, British masters by recommending King Abdulaziz go with the Americans on the oil. Absolutely. Concession. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, Philby had another uh, uh, infraction with the British. They, they actually imprisoned him during the Second World War in India because he was opposed to the war. He was a peacenik, if you like, uh, during the Second World War. So uh, he didn't have much love bet between him and, and British authorities. <laughs> um, can we turn Prince Turkey to the King Faisal Foundation, which was yes. established in 1976? Can you, can you tell us the origins, um, you know, and, and you know, whose idea was it? And, and what was the thinking when you founded it? When the late king died, uh, within the first uh, meetings between um, the, the, the heirs to the king, brothers and sisters, uh, my brother Khalid, uh, at the time he was governor of the Asir province in the south, um, came up with the idea of setting up uh, a philanthropic foundation in the name of the late king. And of course, that idea was supported by the rest of us. And uh, he and I, uh, within um, a couple of months after that, uh, took a trip to the United States to look at uh, the work of American uh, foundations. Uh, we visited with the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon uh, Group, uh, some of the prominent uh, well-known uh, entities in the United States. And in order to see how they operated, and uh, to get a feeling for uh, what to do uh, next. Uh, and uh, it was a very informative uh, trip for us to see how the philanthropic work, particularly in the United States, was undertaken by these important uh, foundations and came back with, with recommendations on how to set up uh, the foundation. And basically, we, uh, we took off from, uh, from a vision that uh, the late King Faisal uh, uh, declared uh, in his last interview before he died, a day before he died, uh, given to an American uh, television station, uh, the reporter asked him, how do you see Saudi Arabia in 50 years time? Uh, and the late king replied to him, I see Saudi Arabia as a wellspring of radiance for humanity. So if you like, this is, this is the vision uh, with which we began to work uh, to set up the foundation. And of course, uh, the financing of the foundation is totally from the inheritance of the late king, whether it was lands or money or other uh, interests that, uh, that he had. And alhamdulillah, and it's been prospering since then. But uh, it was set up for several reasons. One, of course, was to concentrate on... on, on exposing the, the, the rest of the world to what Saudi Arabia is. And that, and that by engaging with, with, uh, with other uh, institutions, uh, uh, setting up a research center, uh, the King Faisal uh, Center for Research and Islamic Studies uh, to engage in an academic sense, but also in a, in a think tank uh, way uh, on um, uh, getting studies and uh, research fellows and doing all sorts of activities with similar organizations throughout the world and inviting research fellows to come and do their work in, in the kingdom. And the other uh, um, part of, of the foundation was setting up uh, the King Faisal International Prize, uh, which gave prizes in, in various disciplines, uh, diff progressively growing into five disciplines, service to Islam, Islamic studies, Arabic studies, uh, science, and medicine. 
Um, and uh, the other part that the foundation concentrated on was the developing educational institutions. And now the foundation, after so many years, um, ha has under its aegis, if you like, two universities and uh, uh, schools for boys and girls in, in, in Riyadh. And the universities, by the way, uh, both of them were, were uh, some of the first institutions in, the, in Saudi Arabia to go co-educational um, after the government went co-educational. Uh, so uh, that is how um, the work of the foundation is, is concentrated on these three aspects of, uh, of life in, in general. Yani. That's an extraordinary story about King King Faisal the, the day before he passed. It reminds me a little bit of Martin Luther King's I've been to the mountaintop speech. Yes, yes. Um, and in that it sort of informed how he wanted to be remembered. And, right. and I, I think it's also fascinating that the King Faisal Prize and, and King Faisal Foundation obviously made a conscious decision not just to, to focus on Islam, Islamic studies, Arabic language. Was there anything like this that existed? The King Faisal Prize now has become, you know, an enormous international award. Right. I mean, uh, 44 years of contributions, 282 laureates, 44 nationalities. And it, it's really a prestigious prize. But did anything like this exist at the time? Not at all. Uh, not in any of the, of the Arab countries, nor in the Islamic countries. Um, if I can, I don't want to be unfair to others. There may have been particular prizes given for specific accomplishments in different countries throughout the Arab and Muslim world, but none that took on the, 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 the scope and, and, the, and the width of the, of the coverage that the, the prize took, uh, not only, as you said, in, 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 in Arabic and Islamic uh, studies and service to Islam, but also in medicine and, and science. And as you said, Yanni, now more than, than 40 nationalities have been um, uh, the recipient of, of, that, uh, of that prize. And uh, so it, it is unique in, in the Arab world uh, and the Muslim world from that context. And I don't want to, you, you very modestly sort of ticked off the other things that King Faisal, that have evolved and come out of the King Faisal Foundation. Each of them is an extraordinary institution entity on its own. And if we can talk a little bit about your King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies, which you are the chairman of the board of directors. Yes. Um, it founded in 1983. It itself has become an extraordinary institution. And I have to say the 966 has benefited because we've had a number of your <laughs> scholars, you know, Mark Thompson and Neil Quilliam have come on to talk about their so work on, you know, the socioeconomic issues. Right. Um, but just an extraordinary uh breadth of of studies that King Faisal Research Center has has uh, established. Can you talk a little bit about that? Indeed, um, the uh, the center has has a working library, which has been in existence since the establishment in 1983. And actually, many um, postgraduate uh, students that have now achieved uh, uh, status and, and, and fame, if you like, in, in the kingdom, uh, all of them uh, thank the, 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 the King Faisal Library for at that time in the 80s and 90s, providing them with the research facilities that they needed for their uh, further studies. Uh, we ha also have something which we are very proud of, a manuscript library, which is uh, ancient Arab manuscripts uh, that have been bought by uh, or donated to the to the center by benefactors, uh, and we have uh, a publishing house that uh, periodically uh, brings out uh, one of these manuscripts and and puts it in in modern form so that people can can see what what uh, ancient Arabs uh, had something to do. And on that note, Yani, I'm happy to say that uh, in due process in the next few months or so. We will be producing a book, which is the center has the only copy of it in the world, uh, which is called the uh, News of Women. Uh, it was uh, written by, by a nobleman, Ibn al-Mundir, uh, more than a thousand years ago. And, and, and it, it, it specified itself to reporting on, on women 
uh, in all aspects of their lives. And uh, that, I think, something should shed light on, on the interests of those ancient Arabs and Muslims and the, uh, and the, and the female sex, if you like. Um, and uh, so it, it is part of this series of, of, of uh, manuscripts that are turned into readable books for modern, modern people to look at. Um, another program that we have, of course, is the Research Fellows Program, where we invite research fellows from around the world to come and do their research uh, at the center on any subject that they wish. And the only condition we have is that whenever they leave us, that they will send us the, the product of their research uh, so that we can um, benefit from, from, their, from their work and, and hopefully go on from, uh, from there. And uh, the center also holds conferences and has links with, uh, with uh, as I mentioned, research institutions around the world and universities that uh, exchange uh, benefits from, uh, from each other and uh, hold workshops, uh, seminars, and other um, lecture series uh, that uh, are pleasantly attended by, uh, by uh, the Riyadh community uh, throughout the, uh, the year. Uh, so these are just some of the things that, uh, that the center does uh, in our work uh, to fulfill the vision of the late King Faisal. Well, it's a boon to us, and as you as you're aware, we in addition to the nine six six, we also publish the uh, Susag Review, which is a leading uh, uh, daily newsletter on Saudi Arabia, constantly citing uh, King Faisal Center. Um, so it's a it's a tremendous resource. So uh, you also established uh, three academic institutions in Saudi Arabia right. that are par excellence. I mean, really, they're sort of the benchmarks. Uh, in terms of quality of education, the the, the first was the King Faisal School uh, yes. in 1991, um, and I guess that was you know again at some point the the the, the trustees got together and said well, what are we doing next right <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it, it's you know it so the King Faisal School was next and it, it, it what can you tell us a little bit about the, the King Faisal School. Indeed. Uh, you know, uh, the late king and, and my late mother uh, established, uh, um, before I was born, uh, a school, a boarding school in Taif uh, called the, uh, um, the, the Model School, uh, Madrasa Namudagiya, uh, which uh, uh, housed uh, students from around the then the Hijaz because Saudi Arabia communications they were very difficult but also there were some some members of the royal family from Riyadh as well along with the sons and daughters of the late king uh, in its confines unfortunately the the female side of that school never got off the ground because the people at the time refused to send their daughters uh, to to study so my sisters did their studies at home but we, the boys, were sent to the school. I was five years old when I went to, to this boarding school uh, to join my older brothers. And uh, it's in Taif. Taif, as you know, is, is a, uh, a hilltop uh, city uh, near Mecca. And uh, um, the, uh, the school uh, survived until just, uh, I think, a couple of years ago when um, it, it is being now remodeled and so on. But it was the first uh, institution, if you like, of that sort in the kingdom. Um, when we all left and go to study in America, uh, my brothers, particularly and I, the school continued to offer its services to the community in uh, moving from Taif to Jeddah. Uh, so when we at the foundation thought about where we should go next, as you referred, you know, we're sitting there in our uh, board of trustees. What do we do next? Uh, my late brother Saud uh, suggested that we uh, reconnect with the with the idea of the of the uh, model school uh, in Taif uh, and establish a, a boys' school at the time, uh, which we did. Uh, subsequently, uh, three, four years ago, I think, or maybe five years ago, uh, a girls' school was, was equally established along the same model as the boys' school. 
But after that, uh, in another session where we said, what do we do next? Um, uh, my late mother actually had the idea of, of setting up a university uh, for, for women at the time when, you know, this was more than 15 years ago. Um, there were state institutions that, that uh, uh, provided education for men and women, but no, no private institutions uh, did at that level. So uh, the, 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 the Queen Effet uh, University uh, began and had the number one license for private uh, uh, education for, for women. Um, uh, I think uh, then uh, having decided to do that in Jeddah, the board of trustees also uh, thinking of what to do next. Uh, my, my brother Khalid suggested that we do another university in Riyadh. So that the uh, the people of Riyadh don't don't get jealous from the people of, of Jeddah, uh, and and sure enough, the Al Faisal University was established in uh, in Riyadh, and now as I mentioned, they're both uh, co-educational and uh, providing various disciplines, uh, and all their graduates fortunately are immediately picked up by businesses, by uh, government institutions to go on and do the work and contribute to the to the society. Saudi, one of the things we cover often is um, global rankings for academic institutions. And Saudi Arabia yes. increasingly is, is populating these high ranks with more and more universities. Al-Faisal University is always there. Um, I think it should be noted that the first, you know, uh, second you know, university established was the first women's college. <laughs> and, right. and it's important. I also want to make a request, if I may, <clears throat> one of the first person, people I thought about that I'd love to have join us on the 966 was Dr. Haifa, who was yes, president of the And uh, we haven't gotten her, I think, because she is extraordinarily busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we still hope to get her on. Because Ifat, interestingly enough, it just went co-ed this year. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so the first women's college is now admitting men. Um, and... Uh, uh, so, so uh, you know, so let's let's not forget where we came from. This was the King Faisal Foundation established in right. 1976, and all these independent, uh, sort of vibrant, thriving entities have come off of that. Um, and and it, it's just an extraordinary legacy. And I have to think, you know, that you're you and your brother Colin and, and, and all the sons and, and those who are part of the trustees of the King must be very proud of what's been accomplished. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, we, we are, we are proud, but I think we still feel that there is still more, more to do. Uh, and uh, future meetings that we're going to have for the board of trustees will equally say, what do we do next? Then? And uh, that is something I think that is within the, the, the range of, of the late King Faisal's uh, view uh, of the world. And you must continue to contribute. Uh, a well of radiance for humanity has, has uh, very broad uh, implications for anyone adhering to it. So uh, it is not just an issue of, of Riyadh or Jeddah or, or borders around Saudi Arabia, etc. No, but it is the, the concept of serving uh, humanity in general. So this is something I think that the foundation is very much committed to. I, I, I don't want to get off track, but I inevitably do. Um, I just <laughs> I wanted to share an anecdote of your brother, uh, Prince Saud, who was longtime yes. Minister of Foreign Affairs for Saudi Arabia. And I had the great honor of meeting a number of times, but he commented one day, uh, during a meeting that he did the, the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle every week <laughs> yes. um, without fail. Um, but back to your trip, you you went off to Lawrenceville School at 14. So at the same age, your father was sent off to yes. Britain and, and France. Uh, With different know, assignments. <laughs> different assignments indeed, but, but it had to be extraordinarily uh, challenging and quite a change. I mean, that, that must have been quite something for you to go off to the u.s and i'm thank goodness you came to the u.s because i mean it, it, it started that relationship but um can you tell us a little bit about that experience going off to Lawrence sure. uh, well i i followed my other brother i was the youngest brother so um, um my older brothers went ahead of me 
And there's a story behind why the United States was the recipient of the Faisal boys, if you like. <laughs> um, um, my late father had a very close friend who worked for many years for the Saudi uh, uh, delegation at the United Nations. He was the permanent representative of Saudi Arabia, but he was originally from Lebanon. And uh, um, when uh, we were coming of age, as it were, and my father was thinking of expanding our educational horizons and so on, he uh, contacted his friend and told him, you know, I would like to send my friend, my, my sons abroad to study. And I was thinking of sending them to the American University in Beirut. Uh, his friend immediately responded to him and he said, look, if you want to turn your sons into Baathists and communists, then send them to the American <laughs> University in Beirut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they, they agreed that we should, uh, that my father should send his sons to America. And because this gentleman was in New York, he was designated as guardian for them. And they chose a school, um, a, a prep school in, in the city of Princeton, where uh, another Lebanese, was living, who was a professor, uh, the director of the Near East Studies Center in Princeton, a famous uh, Lebanese-American professor called Professor Philip Hetty, uh, who, had, who had produced the, the seminal work, if you like, on the history of the Arabs that was taught in many schools in all of the educational institutions in America for, mm -hmm. for many years. And he was also supposed to keep an eye a little bit on, on my brothers from, from the Han School in Princeton. Um, my first year in America, actually I was 13, not 14, uh, was I, I joined my brothers uh, at the Han School uh, for, for one year um, to learn English and, and to get acquainted with school life and so on. The very next year though, I was shipped off to a nearby school called the Lawrenceville School another prep school uh, just outside Princeton. And that's where I did my, uh, my uh, um, uh, pre-university pre studies uh, until I graduated from there. And then on to Georgetown, where you, you, you are a regular visiting professor. Yes. Uh, you, you, I, I, fortunately, each, each winter, it seems you're here teaching. Is it the same course or is it a variety of courses? Well, it's not a specific course. It's mostly uh, I get invited by the resident professors to talk to their classes. Um, and I spend a period between a month and a month, uh, a month and a half um, attending these classes and talking about the subjects that the students are interested in, uh -huh. whether it is um, history, uh, economics, uh, social uh, affairs, uh, etc., about Saudi Arabia particularly, but the Arab and Muslim world in, in general. The King Faisal Prize, um, I mean, it dates back to when the reporter asked King Faisal um, how he saw Saudi Arabia in 50 years time. Um, and you mentioned this already, I see Saudi Arabia in 50 years time as a wellspring of radiance for humanity. How do you see Saudi Arabia in 50 years time from today? Well, you know, I think my father's uh, vision is coming to, to, to life. Um, um, the kingdom's development since he died, it's nearly 50 years since he died now. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, uh, we're coming to the, sta to the, to the stage where, where his vision is coming to, to, to reality. And alhamdulillah, he's particularly under King Salman and uh, the leadership of Crown Prince Mohammed, the inauguration of Vision 2030 is very much an application of that um, um, uh, that broad uh, engagement uh, with humanity that that the late king envisioned uh, when he was asked that question. Um, I don't have that kind of, of, of long-range perspective li like my father had, um, but uh, what I can say is that uh, um, the uh, the kingdom is in a much better place to provide. The, the, the intent of being radiance to humanity now than it ever was even during my father's time. So this is where I think we're heading. Uh, um, a small indication of that, I think 
is the success that we had on the soccer field uh, <laughs> yesterday. Um, the enthusiasm and the, the elan uh, that within the society that, that Vision 2030 has inspired uh, is extraordinary. Uh, I, I'm sure you've come to the kingdom since, since the, the vision was, was announced. Uh, I remember Prince Mohammed being asked in, in 2016 when the, he launched the vision uh, uh, how he saw Saudi Arabia in the future. And, and I th his answer, if I can correct him, correctly quote him, was in five years' time, Saudi Arabia will be completely different. And, and he's been true to his word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, whether it is on social issues, whether it is on political issues, whether it is economic issues, and so on, and just an example of that, yeah, and the world went through a horrific uh, pandemic uh, in the past few years uh, that affected all of humanity, and basically um, humbled uh, uh, humanity into uh, accepting that it is vulnerable. Uh, no matter how successful it was in terms of science and so on. And in terms of economics, all countries around the world suffered enormously, as did Saudi Arabia. But because of the, of the actions of the government during the pandemic, um, coming out of the pandemic, uh, as an example, in, 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 in the G20, Saudi Arabia has the highest GDP growth rate uh, among the G20. Um, this year is going to touch, I think, 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that is something that gives us pride that we, we managed to, to face this challenge of, of, of the pandemic. And yet we were able not only to, to, to face it, but also to come out strong from it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is something I think that other countries are looking to the Saudi Arabia now to see why it is that Saudi Arabia has managed to do that. And uh, alhamdulillah, I mean, uh, it is not a question of, of pride as much as it is a question of, uh, pro, uh, you know, thanking God for, for, for the opportunity to do that and being able to, to implement what was envisioned in Vision 2030 when it was first established in 2016. No, it is something to be proud of. We've talked about the resilience of Saudi Arabia. And, and I think it's interesting, too, is since we're talking about King Faisal Foundation and its commitment to education and, and research, a lot of Saudi Arabia's success was because they followed the science. Yes. And, and, and that was an important part of, you know, how they approached this challenge and, and an important reason they, I think they came out of it so effectively. And, I, and by almost every metric, one of the top countries in the world in terms of managing this crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you set the stage perfectly for my next question. Um, Saudi Arabia is now an emerging power, um, increasingly a, an economic power in the region and globally. That affects the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, and you have tremendous experience in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, um, obviously. Looking forward in the years to come and the decades to come, what are the foundations of a strong U.S.-Saudi relationship that benefits both sides? Well, the kingdom has been in, in, in a relationship with the United States over eight years. I mentioned how things began initially in the 30s. And uh, throughout that time, uh, we developed a very, very strong linkage to the United States, not just uh, politically and uh, government to government, but from my personal view, it was mostly people to people. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when Americans came to the kingdom in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, they came with their kids and their wives uh, and developed uh, a lively community uh, of Americans that even today sends uh, little league baseball players to be in the American competition uh, for the uh, championship of little league baseball players. Uh, and uh, within Saudi Arabian borders live more than 80,000 Americans spread all over, all over the, uh, the kingdom. On the other side, of course, we have our student population, which has been consistently growing since the 1940s when our first students were sent to the United States uh, uh, into a community 
uh, of today, I think something like uh, maybe 60,000 Saudis living with their wives and children and so on in America, acquiring skills and know-how, etc. If I can give it a measure, in the last 30, 40 years, more than half a million Saudis mm -hmm. went, went through that program. So you can imagine their impact on the kingdom uh, when they came back. And fortunately for us, 99.9% of them have come back. Uh, they didn't choose to stay in the United States and then do their contribution there, but rather they came back to contribute to the development of Saudi Arabia. So that, that is really in the, 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 the fiber that, that, uh, that holds the, the two countries uh, together. Politically, of course, we've had our ups and downs. And I mentioned one of them, the issue of Palestine and, and President Truman reneging on President Roosevelt's promise, even his own promise, which he assured King Abdaiz on, um, that led, for example, in 1973 to the oil embargo, when America took sides in that conflict, uh, providing Israel with, uh, with its needs, uh, military hardware and so on, uh, etc. Uh, we've had other issues in, in the meantime, but we've always come out strong because of that linkage that brought us together. Uh, and I think more recently, of course, we've had the issue of, of disagreements on OPEC plus uh, decisions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, oil production. But I think now we're, we're in the process of getting over that. Uh, two things have happened since uh, OPEC plus uh, created such a big, uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, bubble of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, resentment or condemnation or, or estrangement from the kingdom, not just by the administration, but equally, uh, I think, rather divisively, uh, the media, the American media. Um, the two things that have happened is that oil prices have not gone up, as had been expected because of the, of the cut in, in, in the production. And, and secondly, uh, the, the, the Democratic Party did rather well in the, in the, in the by-elections they had uh, in America, where, where the concern was that the decision to cut oil will have an impact on that, on that uh, election. So these two things, I think, have, have calmed things down a bit, uh, and the rhetoric now is more of engagement rather than of disengagement. And I was at the Manama, conflict, uh, Manama Dialogue Conference just a couple of days ago, where American officials, uh, from politicians and, and, and bureaucrats to uh, military uh, leaders, uh, reaffirmed the closeness of the relationship between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia and the need to, uh, to strengthen it. Because we have common interests together whether it is fighting terrorism, whether it is um, meeting the challenge of, of a very, very uh, destructive and, and uh, disruptive uh, Iranian uh, policy in the area, uh, whether it is the issue of economic cooperation for the benefit of, the, of humanity and making sure poor countries don't suffer from issues of rice, oil price rises or, or, or depression, etc. All of these things bring us together and peace in the Middle East. Yani that has been a constant refrain in our relationship with America and America has confirmed its, its, uh, its presence. Uh, you remember when Mr. Biden visited Jeddah, um, he said it plainly, we're here to stay, we're not leaving you guys. Uh, so that was very reassuring. And I think that is something that was needed to be said by the, by the president when he said it. And it brought a bit of calm to the, you know, there was a lot of talk about America turning to, to Asia, and, uh, disregarding what's happening in the Middle East. Basically, America cannot afford to, to, to leave the Middle East. Uh, you've got too many interests uh, at hand, not just economic and, and, uh, and uh, business interests, but also political. Yeah, the, you have the advancement of Russia in, in, in the Middle East, in Syria, and, and in, in other places in, in the area here. You have Iran's extraterritorial ambitions, which extend from Iraq all the way to the, to the Mediterranean, and including Yemen in the, in the meantime. So all of these issues bring us together. And ha happily, 
I think all of us are recognizing that not only do we need each other, but we need to work together, which we have done in the past, Yanni, to the benefit of both countries. If I may add, you you point out that I call it a firestorm after the OPEC plus. That's a better word than the ones I use. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And, and there was a little hiatus there. Fortunately, this is October five. You know the decision, the you know the, the November elections. You know Congress is mostly out of session until until January. So, and you you point to two things: the oil prices have have been moderate, and yeah, the elections uh, went a certain way. We've been interested because one of the common themes on the nine six six is is updating the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia right. to recognize how it's changed, and. After the firestorm, there was actually some decent commentary that talked about, okay, let's look at Saudi Arabia and how it's changed and changing and understand what its priorities are. And 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 this is again what we try to do on the 966. So I think that's another good thing that came out of this. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I always appreciate about you, Prince Turkey, is um your calm. You know, you bring extraordinary uh, experience and expertise and perspective to the relationship because you've watched it over time. You've been a key player in it over time. But whenever I hear you speak, you say, "Okay, slow down. Let's look at <laughs> let's look at the fundamentals." I agree with you hundred percent. It's a people to people thing. Um, and and so anyway, I just think it's an invaluable uh, voice that you bring to the conversation. And I, you know, I can't thank you enough no, for thank joining you. us today. Well, let me just add one thing, Yanni. Uh, Princess Rima, I saw her in an interview with uh, an American uh, news channel. Uh, when she was asked about uh, the, the review of American-Saudi relationships and uh, where it was going to go. And she said, this is going to be beneficial to both of us. Um, because, and she put it very bluntly, Yanni. She said, look, Yanni, we are a young country now. Uh, not only in terms of age uh, for, for the country itself, but also for most of the people with a young leadership. So we need to, to engage in, in where we can go forward with that new development that has occurred over time. So that is something I think that uh, the kingdom is very welcome to reviewing the relationship from that perspective. But there is a solid foundation on which to build. Uh, and I always say that we must look forward and not look backward. Uh, there is much still to do with each other. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and your, and your listeners and viewers. His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al-Faisal Al-Saud joins us from Riyadh. Prince Turkey, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank we you. really appreciate thank it. Thank you, both of you. Thank you.